Today we come to that section of Ephesians where Paul discusses marriage, but to be more accurate, it is a section in which he discusses, discusses submission, and it just starts off with marriage. Uh, so starting in verse 21 and reading on through verse 33 to get the whole sense of the context, they will be looking at an overview of marriage and not... Um, digging in verse by verse just yet. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So Paul there in verse 21 starts off the section, oftentimes when you're maybe in a wedding ceremony and you hear this read, they don't start in verse 21, they start in verse 22, but verse 21 is vital to understanding everything that follows after that. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then what Paul does is he goes about showing what that subjection looks like to each other in the various relationships. So it starts with marriage and he starts with a wife subjecting herself to her husband. And then the husband's responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church, which is an, a subjection to that purpose of that's what you're going to be doing as a husband. The children subjecting themselves to their parents, fathers not provoking their children to wrath, which is the subjection to a certain way of parenting rather than how he might be inclined to do it. Uh, slaves obeying their masters, and finally masters treating their slaves with respect, which is again another type of subjection to Christ. So be subject to one another, and then there's all the particulars on what that looks like and all the relationships we have between family and, you know, employment and so forth. Uh, the bulk of instruction that we have on marriage comes from this passage right here, as well as Colossians 3, 18 through 19, which is just a little bit and a parallel passage. There's 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, 1 Corinthians 7, and Genesis 2, 18 through 24. But for those of you who are married or who are about to be married, who are hoping one day to be married, you can consider this marriage counseling or pre-wedding counseling. A good deal of what I would tell you in the counseling sessions is what I will tell you right here. 
I have no other wisdom except what is found in this book. I'm not, I have no better ideas than what we find right here about how marriage works and doesn't work, what the purpose of it is, and so forth. What a husband is to do, what a wife is to do. Marriage is just a basic and foundational aspect of human society. And any society that attacks it does so to its own ruination. It's just to total un totally unravel your entire society if you attack marriage. And it has been under attack really from the beginning by the devil, but exceedingly so in our day in our country. We live in a day and in a culture that has no idea what marriage even is. We don't know what it's for. We don't think it's even necessary and find it inconvenient. Many people view it as an unnecessary complication, something that just makes it harder to divide up the assets once we eventually do break away from our lover. We don't even know what men and women are anymore. So this is really important for you and me and for everyone, for this culture. We need to wash our minds with the scripture and wash the lies of our culture away, baptizing our minds in the truth of scripture. What does God say? about marriage. In this passage, Paul quotes Genesis 2, where he talks about the two become one flesh, indicating that he has this passage in mind, Genesis 2, and that he doesn't consider it passe. And so we're going to go there first, and then we'll come back to Ephesians 5. So looking now at Ephesians 2, 18 through 24, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So as we consider the truth about marriage from scripture over against what our culture tells us, the first thing to note about marriage is that it's not a mere human contrivance. And it's certainly not an accident. Marriage exists because God ordained that it would. Marriage was not created by human beings for expediency though there are aspects of it that are quite convenient. Marriage is God's idea, not man's. Secondly, God made Adam blameless and without sin, but not complete. That's the way he made him. Even in the perfect world of Eden, even with God as Adam's companion and father, Adam was still not complete. 
God made him incomplete. Deliberately. And when we come back to Ephesians 5, we'll see why. God made Adam to need a wife. You can be perfect in one sense and yet still needy. Kind of messes with our ideas a bit. That was Adam. He was perfect in holiness. He was perfect in mind and body. He was perfect in his affections. He trusted God fully at this point. He loved God with all his heart at this point. And yet he was still incomplete and needy. It was not good that he was alone. Meaning that even with God right there and no broken fellowship with God over sin yet, Adam was still alone in some sense. There was a loneliness to his condition pre-Eve. We live in a world now where loneliness is absolutely epidemic. I haven't lived thousands of years, so I can't make some sweeping statement like loneliness is at an all-time high, but I can say that it's bad, and social media doesn't help. seems to make it worse. Someone can have all these friends on Facebook, but no real friends. For what it's worth, the sermon that I have on Sermon Audio that is downloaded the most, at least over time it has been, is The Lonely Christian. Seems to be something that people are typing in. Adam was made perfect in one sense, and yet he was incomplete. His state was inferior to what it will be for everyone who is in heaven, all believers. Then and only then will fellowship with the triune God be so all-satisfying that there will be no need for marriage. Then and only then will we be complete and no longer afflicted by loneliness. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot obtain happiness and satisfaction with God in this life as Christians such that it's just impossible to be happy as a single person, that we can't be happy apart from marriage. I'm not saying that. There is this grace that God gives to widows and widowers to help them in their loneliness, people who are estranged from their spouse, those who are divorced and who depend on God. There are those who have been given a gift of single, singleness. They are contented with God and have such close communion with Him that they don't seem to need marriage. And they really show us what heaven will be like in one way. But I think this is the minority. For most people, marriage is the norm. Paul had that gift of singleness, and he said in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Yet I wish all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35, he is referring to a present distress that has erupted in that day. He said, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So he speaks of the advantage of a single person having an undistracted devotion to the Lord, not having his worries and concerns about pleasing be divided between God and a spouse, as they sometimes are. But he also acknowledges that each one has his gift, one this and another that, and that not all have this gift. The ordinary pattern that is common for man is they are incomplete without a spouse. Thirdly, from the Genesis passage, we can see that God solved the alone problem for Adam by giving him a wife. He didn't give him a dog, man's best friend. The dog kind was already created, was already brought before Adam. He named it, but the dog was not suitable. A woman was suitable, and not just a woman, but a wife. Not a slave girl, not a prostitute, not a concubine, not a girlfriend, a wife. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that, that phrase, that sentence, could be a continuance of the words of Adam, could be Adam speaking, a prophecy that God gave him, or it could be Moses writing that. In either case, it is the word of God regardless. The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And note also that God gave Adam one wife, not a collection of wives. Polygamy was not the prescribed will of God. In the beginning, it was not so. Polygamy was not his intention for marriage. God also did not give Adam another man, either as a buddy and certainly not as a mate. Homosexuality is a deviant aberration from God's prescribed order. So is pedophilia, so is bestiality. These things are abominations in the sight of God. So marriage is the union of one man and one woman through covenant. Polygamous arrangements that we see in the Bible were marital, that was marriage, but I mean it corresponded to nature. There was male, female at least, but it was a perversion of marriage. One man, one woman is God's pattern. That's what it is from the beginning. That's the pattern. Fourthly, from this passage in Genesis, we see that not only did Adam need a companion to solve the alone problem, but he needed a helpmate. He was not created to be independent and self-sufficient. What did he need help with? Well, for one, God ordained that he would fill the earth with his children, his descendants, and subdue the earth. And yet he was not created in such a way as to be able to do that by himself. He was not given the ability to conceive children in his body and produce descendants all by himself. He needed a wife for that. And God intended it that way. God could have created Adam to be able to conceive if God wanted him to be able to do that. But God did not intend for that. 
He did not intend for the business of childbearing and childrearing to be done by a single man. And ladies, he didn't intend it to be done by single women either. And that especially needs to be pointed out in our day. And I'm not talking about those who, through calamity or whatever, find themselves in that situation. But we're talking about the design, the way it's supposed to work. We live in a strange time where wrong is right and right is wrong, where darkness is called light and light is called darkness. We live in this brave new world where two men can adopt a baby and pretend that they're a family, or two women can. We live in a world where government welfare enables women to think they can raise children without a husband because they can get a government check tied to the children. Who needs a husband to pay the bills when the government will give you a check and an apartment in the government housing complex? We live in a world where because of that welfare system and because of abortion, men think they can fornicate with many women and they don't have to worry about the financial cost of raising those children. Not my job, the government will do it. Or the woman will just have to go get an abortion. Neither one of us will have to worry about raising it that way. Birth control exacerbates the problem by divorcing sex from the possibility of producing a child. Therefore, men and women feel free to fornicate and be promiscuous without the messy consequence, quote-unquote, of having to raise a child. And if birth control doesn't work and the woman gets pregnant anyway, there's always abortion that can be utilized as an ace card. But we live in Aldous Huxley's brave new world, his dystopian world of test tube babies and motherless children. We can go to a company that pays women for their eggs and men for their sperm. And we can shop through a catalog, pick out the parents and find out the kind of genetics that we want our baby to have. A single woman can purchase sperm and be inseminated to have a baby without a husband. A woman who has trouble conceiving can implant a fertilized egg in her womb, usually several, with many of them dying and being purposely aborted. Women or couples can rent a womb and pay another woman to carry their child in surrogacy, either by being inseminated with someone else's sperm or by having a fertilized egg implanted within her. And this is our brave new world, our experiment. But what does the Bible say? Adam needed Eve as a helper. And one of the ways she was created to help him was in childbearing and rearing. But today, men and women alike would rather make money, have careers, pay for bigger homes and nicer cars and toys, and farm out the child-raising responsibilities, outsourcing it to daycares and preschools. Women have babies and then they go right back to work. So the young children are shipped out to daycare at such a tender age. The job of being a mother is outsourced to women who aren't the child's mother and can't possibly replace the child's mother. So we have a country now where in the vast majority of people that you see and meet probably have some sort of detachment disorder. And people comfort themselves with false assurances. 
Oh, it'll be okay. Everybody's doing it. My baby will get over it. No, she won't. Is it any wonder we have so many problems? And this is just one of the factors of our profound dysfunction. Eve was created to help Adam. She was to bear his children and nurture them and help raise them. Adam was not created with the ability to devote himself full-time to work, gardening, tilling, sowing, reaping, subduing the earth, and devote himself full-time to rearing the children, training them, educating them, etc. He needed a helpmate. He needed a wife. This was all the case before the fall. Fifthly, and this is closely connected to the last point, we see that God created Adam first and then made Eve for Adam. That's important and significant, though it rankles feminists to be sure. It's not just an inference that comes from Genesis 2. It's something that Paul specifically brings up and emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 11 and also 1 Timothy 2, where he prohibits women from teaching or being in authority over men in the church. And why does he say it's forbidden? Because Adam was created first and then Eve. That order is permanently significant. He also gives another reason why women should not teach or be in authority over men in the church, namely that Eve was deceived, not Adam. And that has permanent significance. In 1 Corinthians 11, 7-9, Paul references this chronology of the creation of man and woman. Man and woman, he says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So to say that God created Eve for Adam is a different thing than to say God created Adam for Eve. The difference has profound implications. So unless God calls a woman to be single, his purpose for the woman is to marry a man and help him in his calling. That's her heaven-sent purpose. It's not a demeaning purpose, by the way. It's a noble one. And I'm not saying women can't be educated or trained in certain skills. Not at all. Prior to a woman getting married, she may have many years of service opportunities available to her before her service gets reoriented to her eventual husband. How long will it be before she finds Mr. Right? Who knows? Who can say? My point is, is that things get very messed up and convoluted and much conflict ensues when a woman flips God's order upside down and tries to get the man to be her helpmate, to fulfill her calling, to help realize her dream, to bolster her career, to accomplish her list of things to do. That's a twisting and a perversion of God's created order. And whenever men and women try to alter God's design and purpose, for what God ordained for husbands to do and be and what God ordained for a woman to do and be as a wife, they make a mess of everything. 
And then uh, there's a lot of conflict and a lot of consequences that ensue. And many times the couples have no idea really why. It's because they're twisting the order. God made it to work a certain way. Try to force it to work another way and it doesn't work. This is going to come up again when we talk next Sunday about wives being subject to their husbands. We live in a very backwards age and you must immerse yourself in Scripture and be brainwashed by the Bible in a good sense of that term. In order to counteract the bad brainwashing you've received from the devil through media and culture. We live in a culture where the differences between boys and girls, men and women, are constantly blurred and confused in astonishing ways. Boys think they can change themselves to be girls and vice versa. Girls join the boys' wrestling teams and compete against the boys. Boys then pretend they're girls and go on the girls' athletic teams and compete against them. But prior to that madness, it all started with feminism. Women can do anything men can do, and they, can, and they set out to prove it. We had, and still have, women pursuing careers and being the breadwinners, and in some cases, men staying home with the children. Women now outnumber men in college, and are increasingly filling job positions once exclusively held by men. And many businesses instigate hiring practices that favor diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI, such that women are preferred over men because the business feels that improves their image and they like to virtue signal to the public that they're very progressive. And the fact is that women can do a lot of things that men can do and sometimes better, but at what cost? At what cost to the family and to marriage, to this fabric of society? Wash your brain with the Bible, dear Christians. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve to be the helpmate of Adam, to help him with the children, to help him in his calling. The calling of the wife is to help her husband in his calling. That's her calling. Sixthly, we see that marriage is to come before sex, not the other way around. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Joined to his wife is a reference to marriage. That's why it's called his wife there. She's not his wife until she is joined to him in marriage by covenant. Malachi 2.14 makes that covenant aspect explicit. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. One flesh, on the other hand, is a reference to the sexual union. And that is, that is apparent in 1 Corinthians 6, 15-16, where Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting Genesis 2. 
So since you can be one flesh with a prostitute, though you don't marry her, men don't usually marry prostitutes, then it's obvious that one flesh refers to sexual union, not exclusively to marriage. But what the Genesis passage shows us is that Adam was to be joined to Eve by covenant, it is implied, and then become one flesh with her through sexual union. That's the order, however much our culture likes to also flip that upside down on its head. It's exceedingly common in our society for boys and girls to start fornicating as teenagers. Eventually they might get a serious boyfriend or girlfriend and fornicate some more and maybe eventually get married or maybe not. Maybe they'll just live together, continue fornicating and never get married. In any case, this is all backwards. It's all upside down. It is immoral. And like all sin, it will damn you to hell if you do not repent of it. So that is God's prescribed order for marriage. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the only way it does work. And we cannot tinker with it. We cannot alter it. We cannot invent new experiments without serious consequences. And our society is full of the evidence of this failed experiment. So let's go back to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 tells us the purpose of marriage. And it is to show forth a heavenly mystery. Marriage is like a sign that points upward, with an arrow pointing upward, beyond the human couple themselves to the Son of God and his bride, the church. Before the foundation of the world, God for knowing all things, knowing that man would fall into sin, purposed to save a people by the meritorious work of his son and for his son. And that people would collectively be called the bride of Christ, the church. So the whole history of the world, though you would never get this in a history class, the history of redemption is about God getting a bride for his son. That's really what the history of redemption is about. Notice the constant references in Ephesians 5 to Christ. Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verses 25 through 27, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Verses 28 to 30. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. 
And finally, verses 31 through 33, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So in every respect, in every way, a husband's love for his bride is to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. And the woman's subjection to her husband is to be a reflection of the joyful submission of the church to Christ. So, although marriage was instituted, as we have seen, to solve the alone problem for man, and as marriage provides for the man a helpmate in his calling suitable to him, there is more that is going on here. Marriage points heavenward. Even the marriage of unbelievers is a sign in some lesser way of Christ and the church. Ordinarily, when a man marries a woman, even amongst unbelievers, the woman takes the man's last name as her own. Why? What does that signify? Signifies that she's uniting to him and in some sense losing an old identity and taking on a new one. It signifies what happens when a person is born again and becomes a Christian taking that name of Christ. The old identity being gone, a new identity being established. When a man marries a woman, they make promises to each other. Why? Because they can't avoid somehow signifying what occurs between Christ and the church wherein promises are made in the covenant of grace. When a man marries a woman, there's joy and celebration and often a feast of sorts. Why? Because it points to the joy of Christ in his bride and the heavenly celebration and the wedding feast of the Lamb. Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who prepared a wedding feast for his son. There it is. Revelation 19, 7-9, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A feast rejoicing at this union between the bridegroom and his bride. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. But marriage is continually used as a metaphor for this relationship between the Lord and his people. Why do brides make themselves so beautiful on their wedding day? Well, some might argue, oh, it's just vanity and self-love. And 
sure, there's anytime human beings are involved, there's that's part of it, but there is also a divine purpose. Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. A bride adorned for her husband. And as I read in the Revelation 19 passage about the uh, fine linen, clothing herself in fine linen, bright and clean. She's made herself ready. A husband might spend lots of money on his new bride. He might not if he's poor, but if he does, if he's not, he does so by because he loves her and he wants to bless her. And this too is an imitation of Christ, what he does for his bride. Ezekiel 16 describes the Lord's kindness to his people in the language of betrothal and marriage. Then I passed by you describing Israel as a forsaken infant, really, squirming in its blood, and then advancing a few verses past that. Then I passed by you, verse 8, and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. It was that covenant, that promise, that vow. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you. So there is this rejoicing of the groom to lavish his bride and deck her out. Song of Solomon is, of course, a classic example of describing Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ in the language of marital love. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. Why do husbands, even unbelieving ones, often protect and defend their wives from danger? Because it's wired in them to do so. They cannot help but to preach unwittingly that Christ gave himself up for his bride. 
He laid down His life for her. He redeemed her. He saved her. He stepped in and took the blows so that she would be spared. Over and over again, marriage, even amongst unbelievers, points like a sign to heaven, reminding us of what Christ has done and is doing and will do for His bride, the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It just is. Wicked men and women may try to scrub Christ clean out of the marriage ceremonies. They may experiment with all kinds of bizarre innovations, and they do so to their own destruction. But Christ will not be denied his glory. He will continue to be center stage at wedding ceremonies and marriages all across the world to the end of the age. This is why God made Adam incomplete and alone and said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And then gave Adam a wife out of his own body. It was because it was desirable that God's son should have a bride. And God revealed that mystery through the institution of marriage. That's the big picture. And that brings me to a concluding exhortation, which I'll put in the form of a question. If marriage preaches a sermon about the relationship between Christ and the church, what kind of a sermon is your marriage preaching? Husbands, is your love for your wife something that could hardly be mistaken for love? Is your heart closed to her? Are you embittered against her? Are you stingy toward her? When people see the way that you interact with her, do they think, that reminds me of the sacrificial love of Christ that I've heard about? Or do they think, that poor woman. Wives, when people observe your behavior towards your husband, do they see quiet submission? Or do they see a wife that is trying to wear the pants, trying to run the show, quarreling, nagging, and hen-picking her husband to pieces? Oh, may God give every Christian husband and every Christian wife the grace they need to show forth the love of Christ for his church and the joyful submission of the church to Christ. May our marriages preach Christ and his church, and may they preach it well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you, uh, you that you instituted it at the beginning and showed us what it is and have showed us what it's about, what it's for, and how it's supposed to work. And we confess our own sins and the sins of our fathers and the sins of our generation in trying to make it serve some other purpose or trying to get rid of it altogether, trying to redefine it, trying to um, take it like a piece of Play-Doh and shape it whichever way we wish. We confess this sin. We confess it is, is a failure. We confess that we thought we were wiser than you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us in our marriages. Marriages hard for sinners. It is hard when two sinners come together and share a life together, 
share a home, share possessions, share children, interact with each other at, at a level that exceeds every other relationship. And all our sin is there and coming to the fore and working against us instead of with us and for us. And we pray that your grace would be abundant to us. We want to preach a good sermon with our marriage. Help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.